Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London. A church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. I'm going to do something unusual this, uh, this afternoon. Uh, something I've never done before. If I flop, it's your fault. No, seriously, it's your fault. So, um... In terms of how we're going to pray, we're going to pray in song form. It's a song we've never heard before. It's going to come up on the screen. And I'm going to try to sing. So, like I said, if my voice gets croaking, you guys don't help me out. That's your fault. And you have to answer to God for that. Okay? All right, let's, um, can we have the words, please? Okay, it goes, speak, oh Lord, as we come to you. To receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth planted deep in us. Shape and fashion us in your likeness. That the light of Christ might be seen today in our rags of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. So you get the first verse. Now, the second verse, you all are going to sing in. Uh, you're going to sing and we're all going to sing together congregationally. Okay. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts. And our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. And by faith, as you must to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail. Let the truth prevail over unbelief. Last verse. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the height. Of your plan for us, truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity, and by grace will stand on your promises. And by faith we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, O oh Lord, till your church is built. 
Father, that's our prayer. Hear us in Jesus' name. Melissa's going to come and read Jonah 2 for us, or Jonah 1, 17, to chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, because I'm not a good reader. Okay, go for it, sis. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep and into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weep. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Then my life was fainting away. I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. That what, what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Amen. Thank you. All right. Um, my name is Ayo. Um, I'm not a pastor, as Mark said. I'm just a regular member of Calvary Chapel, South London. Um, and... Uh, it's a privilege to be here today. I'm actually taking Mark's section today because Mark was too lazy to actually do his own Bible study. So <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just playing. So no, no, no. Um, it's a privilege. I'm taking Mark's study because Mark had other stuff to do, prepare for men's meeting and, um, and also other things which I don't know about. But all right, but let's get it in. The Lord, amen, 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 bro, amen. <laughs> okay, I grew up in a very um, celebratory household. Um, when I was young, we would have like cousins around where we would uh, we would have parties, like we'll have baby dedications. Everything that we did growing up seems to be seemed to be something that re you know that required some sort of celebration, and then. The best of all was Christmas for me. But one thing I never quite understood when I was a kid was the day after Christmas, 26th of December, um, which is Boxing Day, as you all know. So, you know, as a child, you ask questions, you know, in, in an answer form. So I would ask my dad, and I would say, Dad, does Boxing Day the day you actually punch each other and you actually box each other up? And he would say, yeah. And then he would give me a jab, and then you try to jab back. And that's because my uncle was a boxer. So I wanted to be like my uncle. I, I tried to, you know, shadow box, you know, when no one was watching and, and all the rest of it. But what was interesting is that in me trying to box my uncle or my dad, all they had to do was just put their hand on my head as a little one, 
And I'll try to punch, but I will never be able to reach. My arms are too short to actually reach my dad. And this is the story here in Jonah. Jonah is a guy who's trying to wrestle with God. And God is saying, Jonah, your arms are too short to box God. Your arms are too short to box me. And this is where we are in Jonah. A man who sought to defy God. God said, go. He said, no. God says, go 500 miles towards Tarshish. He says, I'm going 2,000 miles. Oh, sorry, go 500 miles towards Nineveh. He says, I'm going 2,000 miles towards Tarshish. And he's, he, he is disobedient to God. To illustrate in simple terms, if Jonah was obedient to God from the very get-go, all you would have is chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, and chapter 3, verse 3 to 10. That's all you have in the whole book. So it, it would probably be like an excerpt from maybe the book of 1 Chronicles or the book of 1 Kings or the book of Judges. But God saw it fit to put this account in the Bible to teach us, to teach us something. We learn from Jonah's disobedience. We are beneficiaries of Jonah's disobedience to the point where God had to put this story in his book. And you know, one thing I like about the scriptures, if I'm going to be honest with you, is that the scripture doesn't hide the woes of his character, of his characters. You look through the book of Hebrews, you look at Hebrews 11, you see guys like David, you see guys like Abraham, you see guys who, who weren't perfectly obedient, guys who kind of disobeyed God in some way, shape, or form, guys who were defiant in, in maybe the minutest of ways, but God still saw fit to put them in the Bible. You know, it's easy to read this book and think to yourself, you know, Jonah should have done this. He should have done that. But let's pretend for a minute that you didn't know the story of Jonah. Let's pretend for a minute that you were reading it in a way where you never knew who was going to be swallowed by, by a fish. Let's pretend uh, you, you never read the fourth chapter where he's angry with God. We are so easy to point fingers until we are in the same predicament that these characters are in. But God... Is faithful. God is faithful to still use people sovereignly regardless of their defiance. God is faithful to use covenant people who have trusted God even in their disobedience. And the same goes for us. Before you point the finger, look at yourself and say, am I defiant? Am I disobedient? And the answer probably will be yes. So as Ephraim highlighted last week, the main character of the book of Jonah is not the fish. It's not the guys in chapter 1 who threw Jonah overboard. It's not the Ninevites. The main character in this book is God. As a matter of fact, the word the Lord, which is uh, translated Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, was mentioned 39 times in this book. 39 times in 40, I think in 44 verses, the Lord is mentioned in this book. And one of the rules of Bible study is that you look at the repeated words, you actually see that that actually points 
to um, what the main story is about. The main theme, the main character of the book is God. But I would highlight again that as Christians, and I'm going to speak to the non-Christians in, in a little bit, we come to a place where Jonah has been so defiant against God. He's in a place where he seeks to box God and he finds out that Jonah, your arms are too short to box with God. What we have to realize, even in this human account that we see in Jonah, is that human defiance is inevitably forced to submit towards God's sovereignty. Listen to what Proverbs 21.30 says. It says, there is no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. So you might think you're doing your own thing at this moment in time. But I will tell you this, that God is sovereign. And even in God letting you have your own way, you can't prevail against God's will. If anything happens to you as a believer... God is sovereignly behind it. Isaiah 14, 24 also says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. And I, as I have purpose, it shall stand. So guys, today, the first thing you have to realize, and this is not one of the points, this is just like part of my intro. The first thing you have to realize is that if you are in defiance against God, either as a Christian or non-Christian, your arms are too short to box with God. So again, connecting the dots from last week, um, he was known as a prophet who served God faithfully up till this time. But at, at this moment, when God's revelation does not meet his approval, he says no. Um, and, and I guess another point to raise even in this introduction is that what the story of Jonah shows us is the obstinance of man's heart. My heart is like this. Your heart is like this. And the most biblically literate people that I know are some of the ones who are probably, probably living in defiance against God. The truth that we know, as Adam reminded me this morning, is not... For mental assent. It's not so that I can say, I know the truth. Uh, the Bible says, knowledge does puff up, but love edifies. What we are aiming after at Calvary Chapel South London as, as a community is to actually live out the word among each other and also in a world that's actually out there. I remember a quote that says, um, I'm living my life as an audience for one before many. So we want to live out our lives in obedience to God. And this is the standard of Christianity. This is the Romans 7 experience that we have. The good that I want to do, I do not do. That which I don't want to do, I find myself doing. O wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of sin. The Christian experience is, in my life and probably in your life as well, is prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the God I love. But through repentance, we can say, here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. If we truly belong to God, if we are truly people who call on the name of God, if we are people who call on the name of Yahweh, Yahweh means the covenant God. The God who has established his covenant with his people. In the New Testament, Yahweh is the God who has established his covenant with those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if we are those people, God is sovereign enough and good enough and gracious enough not to allow us to continue or to prevail, to prevail, to prevail in defiance. We won't prevail in defiance. You know, I think it was Spurgeon who said that I don't know a Christian who can sin successfully. If you're in a place where you're in sin and sin and defiance doesn't convict you, my question to you would be, are you really a Christian? I heard another story once a little while back of... Um, of a pastor who preached um, a very convicting sermon. In this sermon, he spoke about sin. He spoke about the realities of hell. He spoke about, he spoke about the joys of heaven. And after the service, the guy walks, walks up to the pastor and says, you know, pastor, you know, I heard what you were saying about sin. I heard what you were saying about hell. But I'm not really phased. And the pastor said to him, if you take a 400-pound weight, and drop it on a dead person, would he feel it? And God says, no. He goes, that's where you are. You're actually dead. You're actually dead in your sins and trespasses. And I think I'm going ahead of myself, but I think it's important to say that while we were yet sinners, while we were still dead in our trespasses, the Bible says that Christ died for us. That's the gospel. Christ died for those who agree with him in the fact that they are dead in their sins. And God is, is handing out his hand of salvation today. Uh, just as a side note, oh well, the main topic, I guess you can say the topic for, for this sermon today is, is salvation is of the Lord. So if you look at verse 9 of chapter 2, towards the end. He says, salvation is of the Lord. So that's where we get the topic from. So everything deals with the goodness of God and how God chooses to save people regardless of what we think is right or wrong. Don't let your pride make you stupid. In Jonah's defiance, I would say, and in our defiance, God has more ways of confronting our defiance than we have of actually defying God. So and this brings us to, to the second part of the book in verse 17, which um, Melissa read. Um, remember that God is the main character of this book. And we will see the prominence of God in three ways in this section that we're reading today. So the first point I'm going to make is God is the sovereign author of Jonah's distress. He is the cause, he is the source, he is the originator of Jonah's distress. But one thing we know from Romans 8.28 is that the Lord works all things together for the good of them that love the Lord. And I believe that here, 
in regular New Testament terms that Jonah is actually a believer here. You know, Ephraim explained last week that, that Jonah had been a guy who had, the main issue for Jonah going to, to Nineveh wasn't an issue of fear. It was an issue of, of defiance, of just basically saying, God, I know what's best for the people of Nineveh, which is destruction. So God is working all things together for good in Jonah's account. So verse 17 of chapter 1. And the Lord, notice the word Lord is in all capitals. When you see all capitals in the Old Testament, it's normally pointing to Yahweh. Yahweh, as I said earlier on, is the covenant God. It says, Yahweh appointed or ordained a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So if you're Bible students, which I believe you are, the last phrase, him being in the belly of the whale, of the fish for three days and three nights, uh, we can go back to the Gospels and we see Jesus actually saying that um, the sign that he would give about who he really is is the sign of Jonah. So basically he says, I'll be in the belly of the earth for three days and he's going to rise up again. So you have a parallel there of Jonah um, being in the fish for three days. You also have a parallel of Christ being in the earth for three days. But Jonah was in the fish for three days because of his defiance. Christ was in the earth for three days because of his obedience. So let's not miss that. So you have some parallels between uh, the, in, the, the, the imperfect prophet, Jonah, and the son of God, Jesus, who died for us out of obedience for, to the father. Jonah, Jonah was, was put in the belly of the fish because of his disobedience to the father. Then he goes on to say, uh, um, it's important to note that, that God was the one who appointed the fish. You know, in chapter 1, we see that Jonah wanted to, wanted to die so bad to the point when they even said, why don't you pray to your God? He goes, no, I'm not going to pray to my God. Why don't you just throw me in into the wrath of God because the, the water represented the wrath of God. The fish represents salvation, right? It says, throw me into the wrath of God is what he's saying. And he wants to die. And then while he's in the water, while he's about to be swallowed by the fish, you actually see that God actually sends a deliverance in front of the fish. Um, but God appointed this fish. God extends his hand of goodness to Jonah and consequently to the people of Nineveh. By the coordination of a big fish to swallow him, God is being merciful to Jonah. The fish swallowed him, not ate him. So if you look at verse 10, verse 10 tells us that the fish vomits Jonah out. So the fish was actually like a submarine to actually preserve Jonah for the mission that God, that God was actually going to call him to. And, you know, like, during my study, I, I read um, quite a few accounts of people who were swallowed by fishes. And, and I, I almost got, like, probably unhealthily preoccupied with the fact that, you know, I'm trying to prove to people that, um, that it's possible that a fish will swallow a man and the man could live. It's possible. Well, there's actually accounts like in 1926, uh, some dude on the island of Mexico was swallowed by a fish and 
And what happened is that as soon as the fish came on shore, they cut open this guy and, and they were able to take this man out and then resuscitate him. Um, and I thought, yeah, that's a good story to actually say that this could happen. It's nothing special. But the Bible actually gives this account in a way that is special in the sense that Jonah was conscious in the fish. Jonah was able to pray in the fish. And what happens is when we start pandering after science and scientific proof to actually prove the Bible is true, the tacit implication is science gives credibility to the Bible. But this is not the case. Science doesn't give credibility to the Bible. The Bible actually gives credibility to science. If the Bible says God made the heavens and the earth in seven days and seven nights and, and then I'm going to try and f- fit in millions of years or, and I'm trying to, be, trying to match up a biblical truth with human wisdom, it doesn't work that way. The Bible stands all by itself independently of what man thinks. Because we say the Bible is the word of God, right? This is the word of God. If this is God speaking to us, we either accept it as true or we don't accept it as true. I think what does it for me in this account is that Jesus historically says, actually quotes Jonah, or actually goes to the book of Jonah, and actually says, this happened in history. And because Jesus said it, and because I believe in Jesus, I believe this to be true. When we look at the word miracle, the word miracles are events that defy explanation or replication. We don't pander after science to actually say that this is true. We look to the word of God as the final authority on how we think, on what we think. And so, so then the question, is to be, the question might be asked, is it possible for a man to live in the belly of a fish for three days? And I guess my answer would be like, it's not any more plausible than a man being dead and then being buried and then being raised. And that's where the miracle is. And that's the biggest miracle of the Bible. If you are a Christian here today, you believe in miracles. If you're not a Christian, then you might struggle with this. And we can have a talk about this later if you want. Okay? So the fact is, like Ripley's, you either believe it or you don't believe it. Um, but what's more interesting about this whole story is God who was behind the scenes of these events. And sometimes we could pay more attention like I was doing to the fish and I could get, a hang, I could get hang up on the fish rather than what's going on inside of Jonah. Um, and when I think of God and I think of his sovereign act and I think of miracles, God being sovereign and being free to exercise his will of sovereignty, the same God who put Jonah in a well is the same God who can easily hurl a storm at you in your defiance and has the ability to, to send a fish to swallow up Jonah. And we see, we see throughout scripture of God being God. He's the same God who commanded a donkey to rebuke a prophet's madness. He's the same God who commanded ravens to feed the prophets. 
He knew where the fishes were when Peter said, Lord, we've been fishing all day. And you have a carpenter, a carpenter tell you how to fish. He knew where to tell Peter to actually put the net so that Peter could catch fishes. It was the same God who, who when they said, um, uh, you have to pay taxes. And he would, ask him, he would ask them the question, whose inscription is on the coin? And they would say, it's, it's Caesar's. He would say, offer to Caesar what is Caesar's. And even in that story account, he said to one of the disciples, get the fish out of the water. And when they got the fish out of the water, what did they find inside? A coin. He's that sovereign. Only God knows how, how long that fish has been carrying that, that coin. God is that sovereign. And then you look at the end of chapter 2 when he says, God spoke to the fish and the fish vomited Jonah. He was able to speak the aquatic language to the point where the fish understood what he was supposed to do. What kind of God is this apart from a God who is sovereign? And I've been using the word sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. Sovereignty basically simply means, for those of you who don't know, and I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, sovereignty means he's in control of everything. There's nothing in this life or in the life to come that, is not in, that God is not in control of. Wasn't it the psalmist who said, um, I can go anywhere in the world. I could go to the depths of the sea. I could go to, to Sheol. I could go... To the, to, to the farthest point of the earth, and God is there because God is sovereign. He sees all. He knows all. This is the God that you and I serve. And I, I, don't, think that's, I don't think that registers in our minds as it should. I think God has become so abused to the point where it's actually factored into our psyche that we don't actually have that respect and reverence for who he is. We forget. We have, an, uh, we have a, 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 a constant state of amnesia forgetting how powerful God is. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. Remember we said the first point is, is God is the cause of Jonah's distress. And he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And in this account, he had the opportunity to pray in chapter 1 verse 6, but he didn't pray. This is the first time that we actually see Jonah praying. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, I cried out, and you heard my voice. Defiance, sin, will stifle your ability to talk to God. Defiance and sin will stifle your ability to talk to God. I'm not even talking to the non-Christians right now. I'm talking to the Christians. If you're in a place of defiance, 
you will find it difficult to relate to God. You will find it difficult to talk to God. But note that the sovereignty of God doesn't preclude the fact that we have the human responsibility to apply ourselves to to God's means of grace, i.e. prayer. God has given us a couple of means of grace, as you see in Acts 2.42. He's given us uh, fellowship, which is where we have community as, as God's people. He's given us prayer, which is what John is doing over here. And he's also given us his word as his final authority, as those means of grace that we apply ourselves to to actually grow us as a Christian. Jonah doesn't apply himself to the means of grace. So the question can be asked, if God is so sovereign and he knows what's going to happen, then why do I need to pray? That's a good question. I asked myself the same question. Um, Listen to what J.I. Packer says in his book called Concise Theology. And I'm going to try and explain it in very simple terms. It says there is no consistency, there's no inconsistency between the teaching of Scripture on God's coordination of all things and on the efficacy of prayer or the effectiveness of prayer. So a lot of people say, uh, there, there seems to be a contradiction because, you know, if God is sovereign, then why do I need to pray? You know, um, there seems to be an inconsistency there. Jerry Packer is saying that there is no inconsistency be- between these two. It says God foreordains the means as well as the end. Our prayers are the foreordained means whereby God brings his sovereign will to pass. So God has given us the means of prayer. God chooses to use prayer as, or should I say, God sovereignly chooses to use prayer as a means where he brings about his will to come to pass. For the Christian, we pray to align ourselves with who God is. We don't, I mean, I have to be very careful in saying that because of the fact that we all come from, we come from various backgrounds. So I come from a very Pentecostal background, which is not a bad church. But sometimes we miss what prayer is for. A lot of people quote scriptures like, command ye me by the works of my hand. And what you're doing is that you're putting God in your hand and you become God over God and tell him what you want him to do. The Bible says no, he will give you the desires of your heart. Meaning that he will give you what to desire so you can actually pray rightly. So in prayer... We're actually looking at scripture, and we're actually looking at what scripture says, and we are aligning our fallen minds, as Romans 12 says, we're to renew our minds, we are, we are aligning our fallen minds to a perfect God's word, to, to, the perfect, to the perfection of God's word, so that we can pray rightly. And this is what God has given to us by way of scripture, by way of examples in scripture. And another interesting thing you see even in this account of Jonah is that there's nothing new that Jonah prays about. What Jonah prays about is actually everything has been inscripted in Scripture. So he's basically praying the Psalms. He's praying the Bible back to God. I'm praying God's word back to him. So there's no inconsistency in the sovereignty of God and prayer. God is sovereign overall because he's actually taught us to pray from his word. So that's just going to be a sidebar on prayer. But the thing to know is what breaks Jonah's defiance. He says, out of my distress, and then he goes on to say, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. And 95% of the time when you look through scripture and you look at the word Sheol, Sheol is a description of the place of death. In other words, he's in a place where 
He's in the storm at this moment in time, and he's about to die. He's faced with death. And it strikes me that Jonah, in his defiance, in chapter 1, thought he was ready to die. But when faced with the reality of impending death, he begins to panic. What is it going to take for God to break your defiance? If you're a believer, and I'm going to get to the unbelievers in a second. If you're a believer and you're walking in defiance against God and you know it, I pray that something this severe doesn't happen to you. Now, I'm a big guy. I, I can't swim. You put me in a pool, I begin to panic. You put me in a pool that's three feet deep. I'm six foot six. You put me in a pool that's three feet deep, I begin to panic. Maybe not literally, but I panic a little. But he's in God's wrath. He's in the storm. He was actually used as bait to actually calm the storm. And he's near the death experience. He keeps on sinking down, keeps on going down, as Ephraim said last week. And God puts this prayer in his heart. And like I said, by God's grace, only by God's grace, I've never had, well, maybe I've had, in thinking about it, maybe I've had experiences that maybe are near-death experience, but I wasn't that scared because I knew I wasn't going to die. Um, but in 2009, I went back home to Nigeria. Uh, my mom had cancer. And uh, she had the fear that she was going to die. And my mom was so scared. She was really, really scared, literally scared, because there's no record of cancer in our family, and why her? Um, I don't want to die before my son gets married type thing, and, you know, and I don't want to, you see what I'm saying? She, she was like, yeah, mom. So mom was about to die, and she was really scared, to the point that I even got scared. I was like, God, if you could take the cancer away and give it to me, I'll take it, because I'm, you know, I know where I'm going to go. I'm not saying my mom was defiant. But she sought hard with everything in, in her not to want to die, not to die. So she was scared of death. So that's as close as I've been to, towards death. And Jonah's in this predicament. You can imagine him just going down, losing oxygen, and his mind is racing 100 miles an hour. Um, and his, I guess his experience is... It's similar to what you see in Luke 15 where you have the prodigal son who says, okay, dad, I want everything. Um, and he goes on his prodigal escapade and then he gets to the point where he's out of money. And what happens when he's out of money is he became so low to the point where he's now eaten with pigs. That's severe. And then the Bible says he, he taught to himself, even the servants in my father's house, live better than me, right? So he goes back home, and the Lord is gracious enough to actually forgive. So, if you're a non-Christian here today, I have non-Christian friends who would say that I don't believe in hell, and if there is a hell, I like to go there because my friends would be there. 
you know, I, you know, I've heard that before, and they're just kind of laughing and drunk, and, and you know, and just being stupid. And I would always respond to say that you wouldn't have any friends in hell. Yeah, they'll be there, but you wouldn't have any friends in hell. Hell is not going to be a place where you enjoy. It's going to be a place of torment. I mean, my words will, um, would not suffice as to the extreme pain and torment that hell is. The same way that Paul couldn't describe the joys of heaven. Separation from God is a real thing. Look at verse 3. And I want you to recognize that in this prayer, Jonah, Jonah recognizes that at this point that the chastisement is from the Lord. So we saw in verse 17 that God appointed the great fish. Now look at verse 3 and pay attention to the pronouns real quick. It says, for you, talking about God, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. But you say, hang on a second. Last week we read that it was the mariners that actually threw Jonah into the sea. I think what Jonah is doing at this point, things are becoming clearer at, the, at this point of death. He's looking beyond the human instrumentality. He sees the sign and he is de his deliverance. He sees the sign and he sees that his deliverance come from God himself. He sees that God is the one who uses human means to actually accomplish his will by actually allowing the, the fish to actually preserve him. Then he goes on to say, all your waves and all your billows passed over me. So it, it's, it's a case of sovereign pursuit. Because Jonah is God's and because God is not done with Jonah, God is, is sovereignly pursuing Jonah. And if you look at verse 4, he realizes the implication of what this might mean. He realizes that in verse 4 he says, I am driven away from your sight. This is what he said. And this picture scares me. This is another thing that Jesus would say on the cross. He would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now think of it this way and think with me. Just bear with me for a quick sec. I'm going to try and explain to you what, I'm, what I mean by that. Jesus, who was one with the Father and the Spirit, right? One with the Father and one with the Spirit. Who lived in eternity past in communion with the Father, right? For the first time is experiencing an abandonment from God. For the first time. He's experiencing... The separation from God the Father and God the Spirit because he's carrying on himself the sins of the world. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, he was whipped, he was lashed, he was spat on, he was, he was ill-treated. As a matter of fact, um, if, you've, if, if you saw the passion of the Christ, someone said that... Uh, the things that happened to Christ in his passion was actually, all you get is just a fraction in the passion of the Christ. 
um, his back was like mincemeat for my sake. The Bible says it was whipped for me. The Bible says he was, it was spat on for me. The Bible says this was because of my sin, the punishment and the wrath of God being unleashed on him sovereignly through the hands of God was because of me. And because of those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus experienced also, on top of that, he experienced a separation from God. And every time I think of that, that description of abandonment, am I so quick, am I so in a hurry to leave the presence of God? So it's a possibility that I don't know what communion is with the Father if I'm actually so quick to actually leave the Father. And the word here is, you would never understand abandonment until you know what real communion is. You would never understand what it means to be abandoned until you know what communion is. For the non-Christian, you might think that it has no bearing on me, that means nothing to me. That's because of the fact that you're not in communion with, with the Father. That's because you don't know God and God doesn't know you. It's one thing to say, oh, I don't care about God or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve God in my own way. I'm going to do as I will, as I please. But the Bible says that you are an enemy of God and God doesn't know you. And I hope that scares you. I hope it's a healthy fear. The fact that God doesn't know you. You might think I don't know God and that's cool, but the fact that God doesn't know you should scare you. But I would also say that there is grace. There is grace. Now, I, I want the fear of God to weigh heavy on your hearts. For the Christian and the non-Christian. Okay, Christian, we have a relationship with God, which is a great thing. But I want the fear of God to weigh heavy on our hearts to promote worship. And I'm going to get into that later on. Okay, um, then he says, it goes on to say in verse 4, it says, yet I shall look upon your holy temple again. Now, in the context of the chapter, there seems to be an inconsistency because he's actually talking about his distress. He's talking about how he's separated from the Father. He's talking about... Um, and then hope comes in here, which is, which is true, or which could be actually translated as true. But the RSV, reverse standard version, says, how shall I look again onto your holy temple? So these few brief moments of drowning cause him to realize the, implication, the implications and discontinuation of fellowship with God and godly community. So there's an anticipation of being cut off from corporate worship. And I would say this again. Don't downplay or don't sleep on the importance of corporate community. Not just within the fellowship, but also outside the fellowship. Community groups are important. 
regular phone calls to each other are important. And one of the prayers I always pray um, for people who I'm accountable to is, Lord, I pray they don't feel awkward in asking me awkward questions because it's for my own deliverance. That's what corporate community would do for you. It would, it would, it would amp up your salvation, if you like. It would, um, it would cause you to be more serious about, about Christ. The saying is true in Nigeria where they say it takes a whole community to raise a child. So I can't go out on the streets and say I'm going to be messing around because I know if auntie, whoever hears me, hears about it, not only will she give me a, a slap, I'll get home and my mom would have already heard, heard about it and then she, you know, my mom would also give me the discipline that's required. The same thing goes for the Christian. It takes another Christian to raise another Christian. You can't, you can't grow on your own as a Christian. You can't say that the podcast that I listen to every Sunday is what actually keeps me. No, I think it's fellowship. It's, it's, it's being in a congregational fellowship that actually, that actually um, adds weight to, the, to your profession of faith. Right? It adds weight to it. Ask the awkward questions. Ask the questions... Have you prayed? Let's go deeper. Ask the questions. What websites have you been to this week? Ask the awkward questions. Ask the question, where are you going to today? And if they, you know, if they don't give you a straight answer, press in on it. <laughs> Who are you going to see? <laughs> Why are you going to see them? It's not for the sake of being nosy. If we have covenanted, covenanted together and we've put this thing called membership in place to actually say membership is for the purpose of being more accountable to each other, how are we using the, the word membership if it ends only on a Sunday? I think membership extends from Monday to Friday. It's not a cult. You don't have to be a member. You don't have to be. You choose to be a member. And then you saying you're a member of a local church, you're actually saying, I submit myself to the authority of, of Scripture. I submit myself to, to, to my brothers and sister for the health and for the validation, not the validation of my salvation, but for, for the, um, help me out someone. Yeah, just to say that I truly am saved and I mean what I say when I say I'm saved. So, he is saying here that I might be cut off from God and godly community because of my defiance. And people who are defiant are usually solitary people. Not because they, they are an irritant to another Christian, but because the joy of being in community almost seems like, like salt to an open scar. You know, there's some families that you see and you admire. You look at the Cosby family, you think, Dad, I wish I was Theo or I wish I was maybe Rudy or whatever the case may be. You look at their family and think, wow, that's a good family. I want to be part of that. And the moment they come around you and they're, hey, how are you? And all the rest of you think, man, get out of here, man. I don't want to talk to you. 
That's how solitary people feel when they're caught off in community. Because it's, so it's so irritating. Verse 5. It says, the water closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. So he's giving a description of everything that happened to him while he was going down. And the roots of the, of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars are closing, closed upon me forever. It sounds like the inescapability of death. It's an intense scene. Turn with me over to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. I'm going to read it out to you. Listen to how uh, the son of Korah actually writes things about this. Oh, Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one who set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those, who, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the, pit, of the pits, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy on me, and you overwhelm me with, with your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in, in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of, of, the for, of forgetfulness? But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes, comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Now, this is, I believe, is how Jonah is feeling. Like I said, there's nothing new in this, in this section that John is actually talking about, but he's actually quoting from Scripture. It sounds like the inescapability of death. And perhaps you haven't really experienced this in a literal way, but I, I do hope not. But maybe in a figurative sense, you have probably had some experiences along this, along this path. But, as we know in Jonah, that this is God loving Jonah. This is God's loving chastisement against his defiance. 
So I take encouragement in this, as, as dark as it may sound. I take encouragement in the fact that I know who's behind it. I know that God is behind it. So my second point. The Lord is the deliverer of Jonah's life. The Lord is the deliverer of Jonah's life. And here you see a pivot point where Jonah now says in verse 8, it says, yet you brought up my life from the pit. And it says, oh Lord, Yahweh, my God. Now did you notice that up to this point in the whole chapter, he's, referring, he's been talking about God in the third person, but now he personalizes God. He says, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, whom I trust, is now personal. Then he goes on to say, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Now listen to this very carefully. When the God with whom we have a covenant relationship with, when he chastens you, he's saying that he loves you. If you're a Christian, if God chastens you, he's saying that he loves you. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 12 says, starting from verse 5. It says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he, when reproved by him. For the one, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastens every son whom he receives. Then verse 7 goes on to say, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not, does not discipline? A.K.A. that's a bastard. I'm not swearing. That's a bastard if, if your, your parents don't discipline. It either means that you don't have a parent. Right? If you are left without discipline in which all of you have participated then you are, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. Again, I'm going to highlight the goodness of God. That's the theme. God, when God is too good. He said, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. We say we want to be like Christ, we want to be like Christ, we want to be like Christ. We sing the songs, we want to be like Jesus. It's a Luke 9.23 thing. If you want to come after me, there's a lot of discipline involved. You have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and then come after me. Then he goes on to say in verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We want to be like Christ. We want to partake in God's holiness. It requires discipline. So it becomes clear to Jonah that deliverance is imminent. 
um, verse 8 goes on to say, those who pay be God to vain idols, forsake their hope and of steadfast love. Now when the word steadfast love is used, you see it, through, you see it displayed in Exodus and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament um, where you see um, God reminding his people over and over again that I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is the covenant I've made with you. The covenant that Yahweh has made with his people is basically saying, I love you with, with a steadfast love. I've loved you with an everlasting love. This is what God has done. And the same covenant in a salvific sense applies to those who are Christians in the New Testament. But he says, those who, regard, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. So he's basically saying, you're wasting your time by thinking about vain idols, by calling idols your gods. And I think here, in the direct context, you could take it back to chapter 1 and actually see that the mariners who prayed to their gods and the God didn't answer them, he's probably referring to them and saying that, you guys, you're just wasting your time. You could also say to the people that Jonah was sent to, to the people of Nineveh, who were wicked beyond description, it's probably saying that because of your many gods, that it's vain idols. Or it could be to himself. I've worshipped the idol of what I think is right. I think I'm better than God. I've put myself as God. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope and steadfast love. So, take your pick. I personally think that it's all of the above. It could be applied to all of the above. Then verse 8 goes on to say, continues in saying, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what, what, what I have vowed I will pay. The vow of a prophet. He said he's going to pay them. The delivering power of God brings Jonah to a place where he now worships. And this is a natural instinctive disposition of people who know the salvation of God. If you know the salvation of God, your natural instinct will be worship. You would worship freely because you're thinking about the cross. You're not trying to do things in your own strength. The Bible says in Hebrews that it is good for the heart to be established by grace. Because you understand the grace of God as in the person of Jesus Christ, your instinctive disposition will be worship. You would want to worship. And I, I think of apathetic worship. Apathetic worship is for those people who have forgotten or who haven't paid attention to, to the saving power of God. We don't preach the gospel because of the fact that we feel it's something we have to do or, oh my goodness, here we go again, it's Friday, we got to go evangelize or whatever the case may be. We preach the gospel because we understand and it's, it's an expression of worship. It's an expression of, wow, I'm being obedient to God's commandments. Not because God says go, that's, God has said go, which is a, which is. It, but the motivation to go 
comes from you understanding what salvation is. My final point, final point. God is the conqueror of Jonah's defiance. God is the conqueror of Jonah's defiance. So Jonah submits to God's bidding. He goes on to say, if you look down in your Bibles, I think it's verse 9. Yeah, verse 9. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. The covenant-keeping God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So that statement points to two things. Again, it points to God's sovereignty. God saves who he wants to save, when he wants to save them. So Jonah, you don't tell me who, to, who, I, want you, who I want to save. Right? So Jonah is sent to go to, to Nineveh. He says, no, God, they're too wicked. You know, um, I, 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 no, no, God. I'm your covenant people. So because I'm your covenant people, that covenant doesn't extend to the people of Nineveh. It, it stays with us, the people of Israel. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. So God is saying, so Jonah is saying with this, in a repentant state, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation. In other words, God will choose who he wants to save when he wants to save. He has not made that information privy to me or to you. He's just given us the command to go out there and preach the gospel. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. And the second thing it points to, it points to the exclusivity of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord and the Lord alone. Salvation doesn't come from me coming to church. Salvation doesn't come from me belonging to another faith. Salvation comes, belongs to the Lord. You ask any other faith how they get saved, it would normally be, uh, I have to do X, Y, Z. You ask a Christian, a true Christian, how do I get saved? It goes, God saved me. God is the one who saved me. I didn't save myself. As I quoted earlier on, the Bible says that while I was still a sinner, and blinded by my sin, God reached down to save me. I think that's what more prayed today. That God saved us while we were yet sinners. Jesus said that no man has a greater love for his friends than to actually lay down his life for them. Exclusive. Jesus also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It says, I am. It didn't say, I am one of many. It says, I am exclusively the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father. No one can come to the Father but through me. No one can come to the Father. You can't use any other means to go to, 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 to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And that is the gospel truth. The gospel truth reflects itself in here in that salvation belongs to Yahweh. And one more point in this. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. In Hebrew, that phrase is Yahshua, which we call Joshua, which in Greek is translated as Jesus. 
Jesus is the only way that we are to be saved. Jesus experienced the abandonment from his father as Jonah did. But like I, rightly, like I said earlier on, Jonah's abandonment was because of his, of his defiance. Jesus' abandonment was because of his, of his obedience. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the chastisement that Jesus went through was offered by his father. All the chastening that Jonah went through was offered by God as well. So you have the parallel, you have the type, but everything that happened to Jonah was as a result of his defiance, his sin against God. Everything that happened to Jesus was because of his obedience. And this is where the gospel is in this passage. So for those of you who aren't Christians and for those of you who are Christians, all sin is defiance to a God who is loving, who is sovereign, to the point that he sent his own son to die on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for those who put their faith and trust in him. If the Lord has spoken to you today and you want to speak to someone, please don't leave without settling your account with God in terms of whether you are backslidden, whether you're walking in sin, or whether you're not saved. So make that a priority before you leave today to either sit down for a minute with someone and just pray with them. Um, you don't have to come to me. You don't have to come to anybody. But there is the, the availability of the care team and also each other to pray for each other um, before we go. Um, so let's say the grace. Uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with us now and forever. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.